this is the religious liberty crisis that the United States has right now. Not, you know, whether we can get government money under the exact conditions that we want to get government money. That's a debate, but it's not a crisis at all. And it is something that should be civilly debated. This this other thing, violence against people of faith because of how they practice their faith or what faith they are, is a crisis. And it's a crisis that we can come together to address. Welcome to Baptist Without an Adjective, a podcast of Word and Way. I'm your host, Word and Way editor and president, Brian Kaler. On this program, we'll hear from Baptists from across the denominational, ethnic, national, and ideological lines that too often divide us. At Word and Way, we've been informing and inspiring Baptists since 1896. Learn more about us at wordandway.org. This episode is sponsored in part by the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship. The Cooperative Baptist Fellowship is a network of people and churches working together to spread the hope of Christ. For more than 25 years, CBF has been driven by its mission to serve Christians and churches as they discover and fulfill their God-given mission. Join the fellowship at work in long-term global missions in more than 25 countries. Join them too as they strive to form healthy congregations and support the ministers that serve them. Put your faith to action. Visit cbf.net to get connected. In this episode, we're going to have a conversation with Melissa Rogers. Melissa is an expert on religious liberty and church-state issues, and she has held a number of positions. She's worked for the Baptist Joint Committee for Religious Liberty, She's been a visiting professor and practitioner in residence at Wake Forest University School of Divinity. And she's also served as executive director of the White House Office of Faith-Based and Neighborhood Partnerships during President Barack Obama's second term. And she's going to be talking about some of those things as well as a lot of current religious liberty issues that are happening right now in our country. Some related to coronavirus and many of them that are not and that are perhaps being lost in the news that's focusing on the pandemic. So I'm really excited to have this conversation with Melissa she really is one of the leading, most brilliant Baptist minds on church-state issues. And I think that you'll find this to be really helpful in unpacking some of these important issues that are happening right now. So here's my conversation with Melissa Rogers. All right, well, Melissa, thanks for joining us on the program. Thanks, Brian. It's good to be with you. So I want to set the stage a little bit with your background, your expertise You've been in a lot of places, Baptist Joint Committee, which will be familiar to our listeners. We've had a couple different BJC leaders on the program before, but also the one I particularly wanted to single out on your resume would be your time with the White House Office of Faith-Based and Neighborhood Partnerships. And so I wonder if you could talk a little bit about who you are and and your your background in church-state relations. Okay, great. Well, it's great to be with you. First, let me say that. I really appreciate your work, and um, it's been nice to be able to work with you sometimes, too. I hope there's more of that in the offing in the future. And I especially appreciate the work you're doing now for Word and Way and, and your other work. I, I actually was just uh, citing a piece of yours this morning in another in a webinar about the letter from the Jewish rabbis about their belief that there was a Jewish justification for staying home and requesting absentee ballots from the upcoming elections because of the pandemic. So I thought that was great. And I was able to print off the letter from your website and all that good stuff. So thank you. That's just one latest example of your wonderful work. So I grew up in 
Baptist pews and learning theological ideas as well as, you know, ideas about how we should participate in public life as Baptists. And my dad was at the time a minister and he and my mother were and my family going way back have been Baptist uh, forever, I guess you'd say. And so I learned about the idea of religious liberty and church state separation in the church and also about, you know, what our duty was to advance and protect that liberty for everyone outside the church. And um, so, you know, I learned the sort of our, our sort of pantheon of Baptist leaders, including John Leland and his fight for religious liberty and Isaac Backus and others. I was really inspired by them. And also really learned something I didn't know, which is that Baptists at the time of the founding of the country in many places, including in Virginia, had been despised minorities. And so that has always stayed with me and made me feel a, a special responsibility to try to ensure that, you know, no one in the United States feels like a second class faith, because that's not what our constitution says, that all faiths and people who do not practice a faith or to be protected equally and are equal citizens under law. So um, I got all those teachings growing up and had an interest in law and religion, but didn't feel called to the ministry. So when I went to law school, I was actually not at all sure that I would be able to combine those interests in any professional way. But then I began, you know, hearing about the Baptist Joint Committee. And after law school, I left to work for a law firm, left law school, went for a a large law firm in Washington, D.C., and I went over to volunteer with the Baptist Joint Committee. And James Dunn and Brent Walker welcomed me with open arms and Larry Chesser and others. And then after I had made a dent in my law school loans, um, they invited me to come work for them. And so I took them up on that offer. And that really got me started in this way of, you know, looking at these issues from a profession in my professional capacity. So I'm always deeply grateful to them and always, you know, send a word of thanksgiving up to my wonderful mentor, James Dunn, who's no longer with us here, but um, with God in heaven. And, And I'm just always thankful to him for all that he did and also to Bren and so many others for getting me introduced to this area. And I'm happy to say more if you'd like me to sort of go on, but I've already given you a big dose. So I, you just tell me what to do. <laughs> well, all right. Well, so then, then we'll skip a few steps. You end up in the white house. Yeah. Which, I mean, you've just given this background on, you know, church date and then suddenly, I don't know, we won't want to call this necessarily the Baptist in the belly of the beast, but somehow <laughs> you, you end up on the inside. So I wonder yeah. if you can tell us what was your role? And, and what was that like? Yeah. So I was, um, I served as special assistant to President Obama and executive director of the White House Office of Faith-Based and Neighborhood Partnerships during the second term for 2013 to 2017. I was preceded by a wonderful colleague, Joshua Dubois, who ran the office and held those positions during the first term and had also worked with then Senator Obama in his office there and also in the campaign. So it really was, I mean, I was not one of these folks who said, oh, I can see myself working in the White House one day. (laughs) It surprised me as much as anybody to be working in the White House. But, you know, what an honor and a privilege to be able to do it. And um, it occurred to me when I was thinking about doing this job, I had previously known Senator Obama and, you know, worked with him a little bit on some of these faith-based issues when he was a senator and a candidate 
And then he appointed me to serve as um, chair of the first advisory council on faith-based and neighborhood partnerships. And I thought at the time that that would be as close as I ever got to working, you know, inside the government. I was a special government employee then on a part-time basis. But then when Joshua was preparing to leave, you know, had the great opportunity to, to, you know, think about going into the White House. And I remember being a little, you know, daunted by it and being at first when I was thinking about the offer and thinking about, you know, whether I should do it or not, whether it made sense for me to do it. And then I thought, you know, I've been sitting outside of government my entire career and telling people within government how they should do things. <laughs> and so if I, I wanted to take the job anyway, but I thought, well, if I don't take this job, that is really a failure of courage because, you know, it's one thing to sit outside government and tell them what they get wrong and right. And it's entirely another, I learned, to serve within government. And I'm so glad, I'm so grateful to have had that experience. It was the most thrilling and challenging experience I've ever had in my life in a professional sense. And um, I learned things there that I would have never had the opportunity to learn otherwise. So, you know, I could tell you more about the day in and day out work, but I would just say that, you know, if anybody ever gets the chance to work in government, I would say do it because I think you come away with a real nuanced understanding or a more nuanced understanding of what public service requires. And it has certainly changed some of the ways in which I interact with government being on the other side now. You know, I'm just, I will always be grateful for that experience. We'll come back to some of the issues related to that in a moment, but I wanted to kind of set up that background for our listeners about all of the experience that you bring to this conversation. Because, you know, we are in this very unusual time we're both working at home, doing unusual things. And, you know, I guess you should first ask, you know, how are you doing during this, this time of coronavirus? Oh, well, I'm fine. Thank you for asking. I hope you and your family are too. You know, it's, it, they're very mild issues about, you know, having internet shortages and the like, but other than that, I can't complain. I, I think that, you know, what, this has exposed, though, is that there are so many people who were already struggling to keep life and limb together and now have just been walloped by this thing, even if they don't themselves have it by, because they've lost their job or a family member has it. And it just exposes a horrific ragged edge um, of our society that has to be mended. So I think like so many of us, I, that's just on my heart and mind every day, thinking about people who are not as fortunate and how how can we make this time a time where we actually shift some of the way that we think about things and the way we do things so that people aren't as vulnerable as as they are now and certainly going beyond that i hope that we're able to make people um, more whole generally speaking in society because there's certainly a, a great need for it well, in addition to all these economic issues, as well as, of course, the life and death issues and the inequalities that this is helping expose already in our society, there have been a lot of church-state issues and conversations that have been emerging during this pandemic, including government restrictions on church gatherings. There have been numerous lawsuits, states across the country. I wonder if you could give us some thoughts about how do we manage religious liberty and public health? And as you're thinking about this, have you seen some good examples from some government officials? And then <laughs> we, we can also look to the other side of some government officials who haven't been handling this balance well. Right. So, yeah, we're in 
an extraordinary time, right? Because if we were in an ordinary time for the government to tell houses of worship that they cannot hold worship services would be entirely unacceptable. But we're not in an ordinary time. We're in an extraordinary time. And uh, so, you know, we have to balance public health and religious liberty differently than we would normally do so. I think, you know, I want to start off by commending, I think, so many government officials and religious leaders for, you know, really turning on a dime when this thing, when, when we once beca- at once became aware of how serious it was. You saw both a lot of government officials and a lot of religious leaders move very quickly to adapt. And, you know, those of us who know the religious community and are part of it know that we don't always turn on a dime. So, you know, that's to everyone's credit. And I think we really ought to continue to recognize that and celebrate it. And also lift up, you know, the governmental leaders who have, you know, many of whom have done such an outstanding job and are under tremendous pressure and, uh, you know, are getting kind of shot at from all sides, figuratively speaking. And so, you know, I want to try whenever possible to extend some grace to them because I know they're doing a difficult job and trying to do it as well as they can be. You know, I think that my position has been that, you know, that the government can and should temporarily ban mass in-person gatherings, uh, including religious gatherings for a time because of the pandemic, the highly contagious nature of it, the lack of testing and tracing just makes that essential. And I think, you know, the applicable law allows government leaders to place that kind of temporary ban on mass in-person gatherings as long as they're across the board and done without bias. So that's basically where I think we still are by and large, although I do understand that there, you know, that there are some areas where the problem may not be as pronounced as others and, and that there should be some flexibility there. I think that what we've, and we've seen pretty much pretty good legal consensus around that principle. We're starting to see now some lawsuits and court decisions go different ways on some questions about, well, if you have a ban on a pretty across the board ban on in mass in-person gatherings that include religious gatherings, what about if you have some instances in which public health orders allow people in offices to be meeting as essential workers and going to retail shops and the like? And the question that's emerging is, you know, if there are approvals for people to meet in groups beyond, let's say, 10 or so in offices and retail shops and the like with social distancing respected, should that should that leeway also be extended to religious gatherings? And so you're seeing some some different takes on that, some different takes on whether that's those are the right comparators to religious services or whether those aren't because they really at least let's take the grocery store example. That's not a communal experience. People are coming in and going out to get things. So I think there's a, a valid question about whether those things are, you know, the right kind of comparators. And we're seeing the Department of Justice begin to weigh in um, on some of these lawsuits, which is, of course, very influential. And so they have to be good stewards of their influence there. So I think there's some things to sort out. And I'm, I just was up late last night reading the latest cases and seeing that they are indeed going in some different directions. So it, you know, it may present some questions that circuit courts and then 
you know, God forbid this is still going on by the time it would reach the Supreme Court. But anyway, there may be some further sorting out that's needed. You know, I think that we've seen some good examples. Uh, a, a couple people I would cite just off the top of my head who have been doing a good job. I think Governor Larry Hogan in Maryland, a neighboring state to my Virginia. Also, I think Governor Northam's also done some good things. But I saw that, I remember noticing that Hogan had put out some real detailed guidance on when he approved these in-car vehicle drive-in church services. I noticed, and he may have been not the first one, but I think he was one of the first one ones to really spell out what social distancing would require in that setting. So he was trying to allow a situation where people could have some services where they drove up in their vehicles, but not in a way that would risk public health. And it seemed to me that that was a wise thing to do and that they were sort of in front of the curve, if you will, I guess I shouldn't use that particular metaphor, but he was in front of the the issue because he was trying to spell out how that could happen in an acceptable way. And I appreciated that. I also think um, Governor Cuomo has done a nice job of, you know, who hasn't caught one of his press conferences where he's, you know, sort of brought to bear some sound science and governance. His, I think his years and Governor Hogan's years of experience in the government have really shown through in their handling of, of these issues. And at the same time, I think you know, Hogan, and I think Governor of Massachusetts, I think too, have really shown some humanity. A lot of governors had, I'm just calling off a few at the top of my head, but they've really let their own humanity show through and addressed the heartache that everybody's feeling. And so, you know, I think that's been admirable. We've also had some examples that are not so good. Uh, one and One that I remember off the top of my head was a judge who reacted to a lawsuit that had been filed without really giving the government a chance to weigh in on the facts and wrote an opinion that what I like to call rhetorical fireworks, which there's no room for any of that right now. I mean, if you were a judge, you need to shoot right down the middle. You need to be dispassionate, calm, not encouraging people to get angry, which they're angry already. And then he also had some very, he brought in some cases that didn't need to be discussed that are very controversial, loaded them in there, made it a much more controversial than it had to be. So I was really sorry to see that. I don't think that's right. And, I, you know, I think that I appreciate sometimes what Chief Justice Roberts has said when he said if it's if it's not necessary to discuss an issue to decide a case, then it's necessary not to discuss that issue because, you know, why complicate it? Things are hard enough. So I don't think that judge lived by that kind of judicial restraint that often conservatives are saying we all need to embrace. That was Judge Walker in Kentucky. Um, Up for a promotion hearing this week. Yes, yes. I'd also say that Mayor de Blasio, I did not appreciate his statement uh, several weeks ago when he said, which I presume had to just be a misstatement when he said that if people didn't comply with COVID-19 orders, then their houses of worship would might be shut down permanently. And, you know, that's just a, an outreach that's inexcusable. And, you know, I didn't criticize him immediately because when I heard that the day that it happened, I thought, oh, he's going to go back and cure that statement and say that was, you know, I read the briefing book wrong, I, you know, or I said something off the top of my head that was wrong, and that's not 
that's not the case. We won't be doing that. I was looking the other day and I could not find evidence that he's done so. And, you know, the problem is that that gets used in a way that's very unhelpful and people don't forget it. This is a sensitive subject. We need our governmental leaders to be sensitive. So I hope, I still hope that he'll go back and correct his statement and apologize for misstating his authority in that instance. But yeah, I know there's, there's, a lot of cases to be tracking on this particular issue. So I appreciate it. There sure are. There were more decisions than I had realized when I sat down to read them last night. It took me several hours to get through all of them. Well, we appreciate someone like you reading them so that, you know, the lay readers like myself, you know, they don't don't have to study them as quite as carefully. And (laughs) as you can tell us what's going on. Oh, you're a pretty good lay reader. I think you play a lawyer on TV. (laughs) (laughs) I I did grow up loving law and order. So I don't know. know, Yeah, there you go. That's my, my, my view of a courtroom. So, yep, you do a good impression of one. Well, there are a lot of other church state issues that are going on right now, and I want to make sure that they don't get lost in all of the right. focus on on coronavirus. And in some ways, we're going to circle back to some of your expertise and experience in in the White House. So, for instance, last month you filed some comments with the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development on HUD's proposal to eliminate religious liberty protections for social service beneficiaries. And I wonder if you can kind of help us see through the weeds here a little bit of what's the issue and what are you urging that would happen at HUD as well as I know you, this is some advocacy you've been doing across governmental cabinet and branches. Okay, great. I'll oh, well, happy to discuss that. I'll try to keep it as short as possible. It's a fairly long story. It stretches over a decade of my life. So I'm going to try to admit the lives of many other people. So You know, the idea of government funding that would flow to religious and non-religious institutions to provide secular social services to people in need is not a new one. It's one that actually has been, you know, an arrangement that has been approved in various ways going back to the 1800s in this country. But George W. Bush made news when he opened this White House Office of Faith-Based and Community Initiatives and then was continued by President Obama. During this time, there there are some issues in this space that are very controversial and some that aren't controversial. Some of the protections that religious providers would have, some are non-controversial. You know, my friend John Dulio says that the St. Vincent de Paul Center shouldn't have to change its name to the Mr. Vincent de Paul Center in order to get government funding for secular services. And that's certainly true. But there's debate over employment issues. For example, should a religious organization be able to make religion-based decisions regarding taxpayer-funded positions? That's a hard-fought issue. So in the midst of knowing that these issues are controversial, there's also been a real effort to find common ground. And because everybody agrees that these partnerships are valuable, that People in need do profit from them on a daily basis. And so can we make the partnerships, can we find greater support for the partnerships? And one of the ways we've done so is through the years, and this started back in the early 1990s, is adding in protections for beneficiaries. Because what we realized is that the religious liberty of religious organizations was being a focal, was a focal point. But what about beneficiaries of social services, they have religious liberty rights too, and their rights should be respected. And so we came together, people who disagree about some other issues here, we came together and say a couple things. One is that beneficiaries ought to be notified about their rights and protections. When we think about people who are seeking and the recipients of social services, they're not 
people who are able to sit down and read the federal register on a regular basis. They're probably holding down one or two jobs. They've got children they're taking care of. They may be a single parent. They may be learning English. Just a host of reasons why there's no reason to assume that they would know that they don't have to go to a religious provider if they if they don't want to go to one, that they can request a non-religious provider or they can request a, a provider of a certain different type of religion if they want, that they don't, they should never be discriminated against on the basis of religion. They shouldn't be turned away from a government funded program because they are not quote unquote the right religion or they aren't any religion, things like this. So we agreed that we needed to notify beneficiaries of protections for religious liberty, not just notify the religious provider of protections for their religious liberty, that too, but the beneficiaries themselves. I mean, that's respecting their dignity and that's telling them that they here are some things you should know so that they won't feel coerced by government funds to attend a Bible study or a study of the Quran, whichever it may be, of a federally funded religious provider simply because they want government benefits. They don't have to do that and they need to know that that that's the case. So we, we agreed around that um, and we also could agree that like I was saying earlier, if a beneficiary says, look, I've been assigned to a Catholic provider and I'd really rather go to, if I could, I'd rather go to a, a Protestant provider or the other way. I've been assigned a Protestant provider, I'd really rather go to a Catholic provider, or I'd really rather go to a provider that was secular. They should know that they can request that and that they should be given assistance in finding such a provider that is of equal value and accessible to them and that can accommodate them. So even though we had all these disputes about something else, about these other things, we could agree on that. And when we could agree on that, that helped build support for the programs and also obviously protected beneficiaries. So fast forward, we, we, we were able to extend those throughout federal, federally funded programs. And indeed, when I worked in the Obama administration, we extended it to all federally funded social service programs that involve partnerships. So for the first time, beneficiaries were getting regular notice when they participated in federally funded social service programs from their religious providers of these protections. The Trump administration has proposed to, to eliminate those protections. It's pretty clear. They've said, no more notifications, no more alternative provider protections, no more assistance for providing help and with beneficiaries getting to alternative providers. Now they say that they say a lot of things, but I'll just focus on some of them. They say that, for example, these people, the beneficiaries don't often request alternative providers. And that's true as far as we know. But that's great, isn't it? I mean, you know, that means it's not really a burden on anybody. And yet people know that if they want to go somewhere else, they can't. And it, and it likely also means what I've experienced is most religious providers are being very careful about things and not pressuring people to participate in religious activities in order to receive grant-funded benefits. So, you know, why fuss about that if it rarely happens? It's a matter of principle that we tell provide beneficiaries about this. And in the rare cases where they request alternatives, then we should do everything we can to provide them. And this cuts both ways. Like imagine that there's a religious provider that is linked to a denomination that does not prove, uh, approve of marriage equality. 
somebody may not want to go to that religious provider just on principle saying, I, I want to go to another provider. On the same basis, somebody might say, okay, here's a religious provider that's linked to a denomination that supports, you know, lawful abortion and other reproductive choice issues. When they may say, well, I don't want to go to a provider. I don't want to go to a provider that's linked with that denomination. I want to go to another. So you can see how people on different sides of the political fences could benefit from this protection. And then I just don't think there's any good excuse from taking away a, a notification to beneficiaries of protections for all their religious liberty rights and, and other ways that we protect them. So that's of great concern, not only just on the merits of the issue, the specific issues, but also because this had been an area over a decade, at least a decade, more than a decade, where people on different sides had worked painstakingly to find common ground. Taking that away is going to not only diminish support for the partnerships, but it's also going to signal to future administrations that there's not much stock to be put in seeking common ground because you know what will happen? The next administration will just trash your work. Now, until now, I think most administrations had tried to honor common ground policies across administration. The Bush administration didn't disturb what the Clinton administration had done. The Obama administration didn't disturb what the Bush administration had done. Here, there's a break with that pattern, at least as the proposed rules. And so you can imagine how that is just a, a poison pill in an already poisonous waters. And we can, we can hardly afford to have the very small flame that we're tending around common ground be doused with water by the current administration. So I'm sorry I went on for a very long time. I could have gone on for much longer, but that's of great concern. I do hope that the Trump administration will change their view and, you know, do better on this and maintain those requirements. They can do them many different ways and we'll have to wait and see what happens. Well, I appreciate the fact that you're passionate about this and, and <laughs> yeah. tracking it because I mean, this wasn't on my radar at all until you mentioned it to me in an email last month. And so we're glad that you are paying attention to these, these important issues right now. There was also a Supreme Court case this week, as if you didn't have anything else to, to focus on involving religious liberty claims once again, and the contraceptive mandate and the Affordable Care Act. And in, I do want to note that in these unusual times that the oral arguments were held over the phone, which yes. is just, you know, a fascinating side point, not really oh, related yeah. to, to our conversation. But I, I wonder if you've had a chance to kind of digest the arguments of the case and, and help us understand what's going on here. Well, Brian, you've hit on something else that where I'm going to have to work really hard to be succinct because <laughs> it has gone on for so long. Another, I guess, is it decades? It's not quite a decade, but we're coming up on a decade in, in this area too. So I'll try to be brief. The, the case involves what's often called the contraception mandate of the Affordable Health Care Act. And it requires most employers to include cost-free contraception coverage in their employee health insurance plans for women working for them. And the reason is because, you know, we've found through scientific studies and others, other kinds of studies that providing cost-free contraception coverage for women has many economic and, you know, 
social and medical benefits for women and their families. It can space out births of their children and decrease low birth weight children, avoid unintended pregnancies and abortions and things of this nature. But they're, they're, one of the barriers has been, or several of the barriers have been cost. Some of the most effective forms of contraception are also the most expensive. I'm told some of these long lasting contraceptions can cost, you know, like thousands of dollars. Then also when there's a copay associated with it, apparently some people will forego it. And also when contraception coverage is, is separated from the rest of coverage, or it can result in a loss of continuity of care and and thus you know you don't you can actually you're not keeping the contraception going then you can actually have unintended pregnancies and the like and so those are some of the benefits so that's why it was put in the law then the question became well what happens when some religious employers object to providing contraception coverage catholic church objects to contraception some evangelicals object to some forms of contraception so what do you do? So the Obama administration in the end came, there were some working through these options and coming to a final position on them. But the final position of the Obama administration was that religious institutions didn't have to provide this contraception coverage if they objected, but their insurers or third-party administrators did, and also closely held companies did not have to provide the coverage, but their insurers or third-party administrators did have to provide the coverage to women working for them. So the idea was to try to craft a, what you call win-win solution, where the employers got to object and their consciences were respected. And yet the women working for them who were entitled to this coverage as a matter of federal law did not lose that coverage simply because they were working for people who objected to it. And this is all, of course, bound up in our employer-based healthcare system, which is all another topic about whether that's the right way to go. But anyway, so that was where we were at the end of the Obama administration with some lawsuits. Some people were, you know, they weren't appeased by that kind of arrangement. They thought it wasn't sufficient. They were still suing over it. Cases gone up to the Supreme Court. Things stood there. And then the Trump administration came in and crafted a new exemption. And that exemption is much broader. It differs in several ways. One is that not only can religious institutions and closely held for-profit companies object, but also, at least in terms of religious objections, any any for-profit company, so of any size, the biggest for-profit company you can imagine can say, we're not providing contraception coverage because of our objections to that. So that's one difference. A second difference is the Trump administration does not require anyone else other than the objectors to provide coverage for women working for objecting employers. So under the Trump exemptions, people who were getting this coverage from a third-party administrator or insurer are, may not get it anymore because nobody's obliged to do that anymore. So what was a win win solution became a win-lose solution. Then thirdly, the well, third, there are two other quick things. One is that when a company, say a for-profit Fortune 500 company would say, we're not going to provide this anymore, they didn't have to make any special notifications to their workers, and they don't even have to have any scrutiny by government. They just say, we're, we have religious objections, and they're out. Of the, they're able to opt out. The other thing is that there's also a moral exemption for those who disagree with contraception on a moral but not religious basis. And then closely held companies 
can object for moral reasons. So that make the cost more women care. So the court was hearing this case yesterday about whether those exemptions were lawful and hearing a number of other issues too. And interestingly, um, I, I know better than ever to try to predict, although sometimes I break my role, but I know generally better that I should not predict how this is going to come out. And I definitely don't know, but it was interesting that the first question, I believe, by the Chief Justice, Chief Justice Roberts, was, is this exemption simply too broad? That's not verbatim, but that was the gist of his question. And he, he returned to that theme a couple of times. And there were some question, other questions by justices that would not necessarily have been predictable. They didn't necessarily cut along predictable party lines. So there, there were divisions on the court about it, for sure. And it may end up as a vote that happens strictly on party line, meaning the you know the justices who are appointed by Democrats go one way and the justices appointed by Republicans another. But it was encouraging to hear there was some you know crossing of the lines, and also to hear several justices talk about the value of trying to find common ground in this area and trying to dignify interests on all sides. Wasn't everybody, but there were some on you know, on different sides who did give voice to the value of that. So we'll have to wait and see. It's a big case. It's an important case in terms of the understanding of the Federal Religious Freedom Restoration Act. And so we'll have to wait and see how that comes out. But they're actually, depending on the court, I was talking to another group this morning. They're, in my lifetime or my professional lifetime, I don't remember having so many church state cases pending at one time at the court. There are seven, including the cases that have been consolidated, and they all touch on different important issues. There's one next week on the ministerial exception, which is the ability of religious communities to make employment decisions regarding their ministers without regard to any governmental non-discrimination obligations. There are cases coming up next week on that, which is obviously very important. And there are a bunch of other cases that are really important. This is a court that's pretty interested in those issues. It's a court that's differently constituted than it has been in the past. And so there may be some pretty serious reversals of precedent in the offing. We don't know, but there might be. We have to keep our eyes open. So I think it's a really important time for everybody who cares about these issues to be plugging in. And fortunately, instead of having to sleep on the sidewalk outside the Supreme Court, and hope you get in to hear the argument or waiting for a week to read the transcript or hear the audio, you can just click on C-SPAN and listen. And that's wonderful. It's really great. I mean, it's a little more stilted, yeah. But what I hope it results in is that the justices, even after this pandemic has passed, to allow audio, at least of their oral argument, to be broadcast live on an entity like C-SPAN because you know, what a gift that is to everybody who cares about the work they're doing. Yeah, that really is a fascinating uh, development, as long as uh, no one flushes the toilet during the... <laughs> you know, that is so funny. We'll have to cue people in. Apparently, there was a sound yesterday during oral argument, which to most ears sounded like a toilet flushing. And no one knows if it was a toilet flushing for sure, or if it was whose toilet was flushing. And it's probably good that we don't know. But I was told that that sound was edited out 
when the recorded version of the argument was posted for public <laughs> listening later. So uh, that's pretty funny. But what we want to be sure and say is that do not let that dissuade you, justices, from po- from keeping that audio coming because we are really benefiting. And if it has a little bit of embarrassment to it, well, we have, who hasn't been embarrassed by something they've done on Zoom? Or- well, at least they weren't on Zoom. At least it wasn't video. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, once they go back exactly. to the courtroom, they can they can stream the audio and there will be no no toilets flushing it'll be safe yeah there, there are no toilets <laughs> next to the the bench well if this wasn't all enough we we're also in an election year which I, I almost we almost i feel like we almost have forgotten about and normally yeah. we would be pretty deep in the election right now with everything else going on but i, I wonder you know if you could give some advice because it's something you thought a lot about about religion religious liberty during a year when everything can very quickly become caught up in partisanship. And I know you've been talking a lot about finding that common ground, but what's a, what's a piece of advice that you might have for Christians and churches as we find ourselves in an election year? Yeah, well, I'm glad you asked because um, I, in part, I wrote a book about that, not just about elections, but it does cover some of those issues. And it, uh, so I, you know, cite a few things in the book and then a few things that come to mind today but I think, you know, there, there are things that government officials and religious leaders should be cognizant of, and then there's sometimes slightly different duties. But I think government officials in particular need to affirm that there is no religious test for public office, both in letter and spirit. They need not to um, cast aspersions against each other based on, you know, whether they are religious or their particular religious beliefs. That is, that's very important always. Also, it's very important for our government officials to affirm that under the Constitution, there is no second class phase. We're not playing favorites with phase. It couldn't be more important to say that today when some people get engaged in some loose talk. And that that goes not just to, you know, formal edicts, but just the way you talk about things. You know, if you're always saying churches and never houses of worship or never including synagogues or mosques and others, then, you know, it, it just is not uh, affirming of those very important guarantees that we have our constitution, at least in spirit. Also, I think we need to remember that this came to my mind the other day when I saw a a call that president Trump had had with some religious leaders where he was telling them that he was really the, I think the best president in the history of the Catholic church was how he said it. And, you know, I mean, the, the thing that one of the things that's important for religious leaders, for governmental leaders to remember is that they don't get to choose who is the best candidate for religious communities. That's our judgment, not theirs. And, you know, he's not the only one that's done that kind of thing, but that's just a recent example. Also, I think it's very important for governmental leaders to remember that it's not their job to tell people how to practice their faith. It's not their job to rule over theological disputes. And it's also, I I hope they would do this, that it's the best tradition not to divide us along religious lines, to try to instead bring us together across our differences of faith and beliefs. So I think, you know, religious leaders can carry forward all those kinds of responsibilities, certainly, and I would hope they would do so. There's some other things that I would also cite, like Martin Luther King's wonderful statement that the church is neither the you know, the master or the servant, nor the servant of the state, but the conscience of the state. I think we all need to bear that in mind. Barbara Jordan's great words about being 
we need to remember that we are God's servants, not God's spokespeople, which is very easy to forget <laughs> um, when we're holding forth. I think that also I was reading something today by a, a Catholic friend who wrote about the fact that we live in an environment where governmental leaders and candidates, some some of them, will try very hard to divide us along religious lines, both within our religious traditions and among our religious traditions. And we ought to do more to resist that. We ought not to make that easy for them, was the way he put it, I believe. And I thought that's a good word for us today. Why make it easy for them to do that to us, both as Americans and people of faith who happen you know, people of faith who happen to live in America, in other words, as civic, secular citizens, and also as religious citizens that live in a particular country right now, I think that we can, you know, live up to our best traditions by telling our religious leaders, you know, we expect you to try to unite us as best as you can, not divide us. Now, that doesn't mean that we ought not to have a vigorous debate on public policy issues and that we not ought not as religious leaders to follow our conscience in vigorously backing um, certain candidates if we want to, um, but also clearly on certain issues where we feel like there's just a clear cut moral right and wrong. But there's a difference between doing that and, you know, a sort of exploitation of resentments and fears of one another that we see too many government officials um, and candidates engage in. So let's make it harder for them and not easier for them to exploit those divisions. Those are just a few off the top of my head. Well, very good. Well, you, you alluded to your book, and that was how I wanted to close our conversation, in that you have a new book that came out, Faith in American Public Life. It was published last fall by Baylor University Press. And I want to go ahead and give a plug in for the book. I have oh, read the you. book and it, <laughs> it's very good. And one of the things that I really appreciate about the book is as you cover a lot of different chapters of different ways of public life, one being elections, for instance, that you have these practical tips. You kind of talk about some of the issues, but then the end of each chapter, you're talking about these, these ways that whether it be government officials or individual citizens or churches in whatever the area might be, things that we can do to kind of live out best practices of finding these types of balances. And I think that's what makes it a very informative and very helpful guide that covers a, a lot of different issues. In fact, we printed an excerpt of one of those kind of practical sections in the January issue of Word and Way magazine. Oh, great. Thank you. Yeah, we had the, the piece that RNS had about you and the book. We had that. And then right after that, the excerpt from the book, that your publisher gave me permission to, to use. So I was glad about that as well. <laughs> thank you. <that> <laughs> Good. Thank you. Yeah. But uh, so I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about the book and why people should check it out, what they'll learn. Thanks. Well, and thank you for, um, you were kind enough when I was working on it to read a chapter and give me your thoughts. And, uh, you know, I just, I owe you one. Well, I think actually it's the other way around. I think I'm doing it because you're you're the back cover endorsement for my second book. So. Oh, that's true. That's true. Yeah. Although, yeah, I did read the whole thing then, didn't I? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I actually, I, I made you go a step farther in that I not only wanted you to read a chapter, but I wanted you to give me some constructive criticism on it. And you, you were very helpful. So, yeah. So, you, you know, once you author a book, you just... 
you regard this whole thing differently, don't you? Right. Um, and yeah. you realize how much you, you know, how, what a great favor people do for you when they take time to read and, and reflect upon your book, especially when it's in the process of being written and, and finalized. So the book is Faith in American Public Life. And what I wanted to do with the book were essentially three things. One was I am have been aware that there is so much confusion about religion's role in American public life. You will hear people frequently say that the Supreme Court has kicked religion out of public life, that students can't pray in public school, that presidents can't talk about their personal faith. And none of those things are true. So you just have immense confusion. And so what I wanted to do in the first instance was to write a book for people who are interested in these issues, but not necessarily lawyers and not, and certainly not people who specialize in this area. So I was trying to speak to someone who was interested, but not, you know, someone who has a background in these issues and say, here, here are some of the basics about how these rules work that apply to religion's role in American public life. I also wanted to make it clear that religion has a constitutionally protected role to play in public life and that we should never say that the Supreme Court has kicked religion out of public life because, first of all, it doesn't have the power to do that. Second of all, it's just not true. And so there's all kinds of faith expressions all around us every day in visible in the public square. And so we ought to recognize that. And we ought to leave behind debates of silly things that are not true so we can spend more energy arguing over the things that actually are disputed, <laughs> hopefully in a civil way, because there are things that are disputed and they're important. And we need to not waste our time and waste people's resources and energy over things that aren't true. So that was the first reason. The second reason is that I wrote the book at a time, and I think it's still true, of rising hate crimes against people of minority faiths, um, people who are minorities in other ways, whether it's racial or ethnic or, or religious or other ways. And, you know, if we think about uh, so many times when religious people have been victimized over the last few years, assaulted, killed, houses of worship, been on the receiving end of gun violence and other and vandalism and other attacks. We just think of the attack on the Mother Emanuel AME Church, you know, or we think of the attack on the Pittsburgh synagogues. And so there's so many others, mosques and and temples and other places. Um, the, the attack on the six at Oak Creek in Wisconsin that was farther back. But anyway, we have all these attacks and people in the United States, I think a larger a larger number of people in the United States cannot practice their faith without fear. And it's a larger number than I've been aware of at any time previous in my career. So I was getting very concerned about that. Also concerned about going into the election when I've been told by, for example, Muslim friends that their attacks on them escalate during election periods. I never knew that until I heard that from my Muslim friends. And I just thought, you know, we, we've got to do better here. This is really a crisis. This is the religious liberty crisis that the United States has right now. Not, you know, whether we can get government money under the exact conditions that we want to get government money. That's a debate, but it's not a crisis at all. And it is something that should be 
civilly debated. This, this other thing, violence against people of faith because of how they practice their faith or what faith they are, is a crisis. And it's a crisis that we can come together to address. And we should do that. So that was the second reason I wrote the book. And the third reason I wrote the book is because something I alluded to earlier, we have a changed Supreme Court where, um, you know, Justice Kennedy is retired. The court has been shifting on church state issues. It's poised now to consider some really monumental issues and some on the court and off the court are urging it to overrule decades of precedent. So I wanted to say to Americans, here's what the law has been. It's the good, the bad, the ugly. You know, we got some of each kind. But I I do agree with the former Justice O'Connor who said, you know, we we don't have a perfect system. And certainly regional minds can disagree about some church-state issues. But if we look at our country, what we really find, I think, is that we have remarkable religious freedom and we have an incredible degree of not just peace among different people of different faiths and beliefs, but actual cooperation among different faiths and beliefs. And she asked at the end of her opinion, this was her swan song opinion on church state issues and and her last opinion, I believe, period, where she, she said, when you look around the world and see so many countries disrupted by, you know, religious establishments and persecution of people in minority faiths, why would we trade a system that served us so well for one that served others so poorly? Now, I've obviously indicated that I think we've got some problems right now in terms of fear-mongering and hostility toward religious minorities, but I think still we have a, a, a great treasure in our country's history on religious liberty at its best, and one that is not an accident. It's it's a the reason in large part for that is that we have, you know, wonderful guarantees of religious liberty and church state separation, and we've tried to be faithful to those guarantees, including, you know, the, through the Supreme Court's work. I don't agree with all of it, but I think, you know, they've done on the whole a pretty good job in this area. I don't want them to change course. I don't want radical change in this area. I think it would not serve the country well, and I also don't think it would serve our faith well, and I say that as a Baptist myself. So those are the three reasons that I wrote the book. I hope that it serves both as a, you know, a a background resource on these issues that you could put on your shelf and take off when you need it. And also as a, you know, kind of an urge for people to think about their neighbors and how they may be suffering if they're of a different faith, a particular minority faith, and think about the treasure that we do have in this country of largely religious peace and cooperation and to do our utmost to keep it that way. Well, very good. Well, I think that's a great note to end on. We don't want anyone to forget. So we'll quit. Everyone go buy the book before you forget. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Thanks, Melissa, for joining us on the program and for bringing your insights and your wisdom on all these different areas. And it's, it's great to have some Baptists out there that are paying attention to these really important issues and that are helping keep the rest of us educated on what's happening. So thank you. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed being with you, Brian. Appreciate your work. Well, I hope you enjoyed this episode of Baptist Without an Adjective. Don't forget to check out Melissa Rogers' book, Faith in American Public Life. You can find it pretty much anywhere you would order a book online these days. Faith in American Public Life by Melissa Rogers. As always, you can find us at wardenway.org. And don't forget to check out our sponsoring partner for this week's episode, the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship at cbf.net. 
If you've enjoyed this episode, I hope that you will share it with your friends on Facebook and head over to iTunes or your favorite podcast platform and write a positive review to help more people to find the show. You can find easy-to-share links at podcast.wordandway.org. If you'd like to give to support this program, we greatly appreciate it, especially in these times when economically things are, are very unsettled right now. We could really use your support. All you have to do at wordandway.org is hit the donate button, and whatever you give there will help support the production of our podcast, as well as our website and monthly magazine. And speaking of that magazine, if you're not a subscriber, I have a deal for you. You can get one year for half off. All you have to do is go to tinyurl.com slash wwoffer. If you have any comments or feedback about the program, you can send those to me at bkaler at wordandway.org. Thanks for listening.